This is Unheard Cuts on Being. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with physicist and theologian John Polkinghorne. I spoke with him on February 25, 2005, at the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. This interview is included in our show, Quarks and Creation. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. So, well, we created the show a couple of years ago. We, it's fairly new. We've been a weekly and all over the country for about 18 months. We're still uh-huh. growing. Uh, we have some funding from Templeton because oh, we've yes. done some other science and religion programming. Mm-hmm. In fact, I did a, an event with George Ellis oh, in, yes. in Philadelphia last year after oh, he won the Templeton Prize. Yes. And um, so what we're trying to do is say this program is called Speaking of Faith, but it's not really a program about religion as much as it's a program about life mm-hmm. and all the ways in which religious perspectives right. are woven in or mm-hmm. or have um, distinctive ways that they can illuminate our thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's in everything from how we work to how we raise children to how we wage war to what happens in science and medicine. Right. So that's what we're doing. Okay, great. And so I try to find thinkers who, like you, are working in some discipline of life mm-hmm. and also bringing that together with a theological mm-hmm. perspective mm-hmm. or with religious questions sometimes. Yep. So <clears throat> so um, we have... I, I'm, I'm so interested in... Uh, Sort of the bulk of your thought, and I mm-hmm. find it quite daunting to sit down with you and and try to squeeze that into an hour. Um, I like to try. I want to have a sophisticated conversation, and yet I have to, I'm, you know, drive to make it accessible, which you do when you're writing anyway. And I thought, as I was, um, I've been reading you for a long time, but as oh, I really? delved mm-hmm. back in in the last couple of days, I thought maybe an interesting place would be to start with how you think about creation. Right. And mm-hmm. and move from there to subjects mm-hmm. like evolution, which and how you think about mm-hmm. evolution and prayer and right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I thought I think it's interesting to to to, to point out that you, as a as a physicist, um, you know, when you start to tell the story of creation or think of the story of creation, the components for you are things like stars and hydrogen and helium right. And, right. <laughs> and carbon and supernovas. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, and I, so, you know, and and one of the things that you say, I mean, let's just start with how you would, you know, how do you start to tell the story of creation, um, Mm -hmm. bringing together your knowledge as a scientist and as a Mm -hmm. theologian? I don't know. Let's just run with that and see what happens. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing I want to say about creation is it isn't simply about how things began. It's... What's happening in the world, right. and we know that the universe is about 14 billion years old, and it's had an extremely interesting history. It started very, very simple. The very early universe is just an expanding ball of energy, about as simple a thing as it can be. And today the world is rich and complicated, with human beings actually the most complicated consequences of that long history that we know about. So something has changed that ball of energy into the home of saints and scientists. And that in itself might suggest that something's been going on in the history of the universe. There may be a meaning and a purpose behind it, not just one thing after another. And the more we study scientifically the process by which all that's happened, it's been an evolving process. First of all, you have to get the stars, and then, then you get the right materials for life, and then you get life developing here on Earth. The more we see that's been happening, the more we see, in some sense, the universe was pregnant with that possibility from the beginning. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look as though it's all just a series of happy accidents. It looks as though it's a world that is in its physical fabric. It's given 
laws of nature designed, one might venture to say, uh, to have such radical consequences as, as you and me. And now, as you, I'm sure you know, and I, uh, and I'm not, I don't think that this debate happens in Britain in the same way, but mm. in this country, there, there is this sort of traditional sense that persists yes. and that is flaring up again. Yes. That there is a real, that there is an utter contradiction between the scientific notion mm. of evolution and between what the Bible tells us mm-hmm. and what Christian doctrine tells us about how this all came to be. Now, one place, now, what I'm interested in doing, I, I think often the debate gets framed completely badly from the beginning, and then it 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 doesn't really, it's not really the right debate to be mm-hmm. having. So I like to try to step back and say, how do we reframe right. it and start the conversation in another place? I mean, one thing that you say, you talk about how the creation is a continuous process. It, so that you, you imagine that God was there, but not that it was just something that happened once. Uh, that, and, and I think, yeah, and if you look at the Hebrew language, what I also thought of as I was reading you, mm-hmm. that we've always, that that, that, that first Genesis 1-1 has always been mm. translated, and in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But in mm. fact, the Hebrew word, you know, in the beginning of God's creating. I mean, even in that language, if you get That's behind right. it. So, and, and in the Genesis 1, it, it is a process. It doesn't all happen just in a split right. second. I mean, right. the six days of creation, they're not 24-hour days, but they're periods of time, if you like. So already we have, even in that very ancient and powerful writing, we have some notion that creation is something that unfolds. Mm-hmm. And uh, I th- the more we've learned about it, the more we've seen that that's, that's the case. So... Today, I think we want to think about creation as a continuing process. Mm-hmm. Uh, God is as much the creator today as God was 14 billion years ago, and things are happening in the world. And the other thing I'd want to say is that God acts as much through nature as in any other way. Mm-hmm. If you read Genesis, you'll see, for example, that um, it says that uh, there's one verse that says, uh, the earth, let, God said, let the earth bring forth living beings. Mm-hmm. And then the next verse says, God made living beings. And you see, even that ancient writer doesn't see a, con- a contradiction between nature, the earth bringing forth things, mm-hmm. and God doing it. God works through nature as much as in any other way. So I think we can hold together our scientific understanding and our religious insight that the world is a creation, that it has a meaning and a purpose and God's will behind it, in a way that is actually more profound, more fruitful than a sort of snapping of the divine fingers in a ready-made world mm-hmm. coming into existence. Now, there is this this new field of endeavor thought called intelligent design. Right. And I sense that that's somewhat simpler than what you're describing. Um, talk to me about how, yes. what you're describing. Well, I think that the intelligent design people ask some interesting questions. Mm-hmm. They, they look at um, uh, the molecular level of life. They look at things like uh, the blood clotting process, or they look at the little things that make... Um, um, entities swim around the cilia that, that are sort of ores that make them uh, the, uh, run around. They say these are quite complicated systems, even at this molecular level, mm-hmm. and they have several component parts to them. And we can't see how they would work unless you had all those parts in place. They like to say it's like a mousetrap. Mousetrap, you've got to have all the bits of it there, otherwise it doesn't work. Okay. And so they say, how could that have come about in an evolving way, bit by bit, piece by piece? So they ask an interesting question. But I don't think they yet know the answer to that question. It's very hard to figure out how things might happen. You might get a couple of pieces. They might not do the final task, but they might do something useful on the way. So you would build it up bit by bit. In fact, that's how evolution seems to work. It seems to be, again, a sort of unfolding process, Mm -hmm. bringing forth, if you like. 
So I, th- I'm, I think the intelligent design people ask some quite interesting questions, and the questions are, in principle, scientifically answerable, but I don't think we yet know the answers. So I'm very cautious about okay. the line that uh, argument they're trying to make. And I guess, I mean, what I think is interesting in you, and, and you're not alone in this, is that mm. you want to bring together a, a seriousness about science and including mm. what science has discerned about evolution, right. a robust seriousness about that, and also a robust and serious theology. And you don't fundamentally believe that the to have to cancel each other out. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And as you say, that, that's a, a, quite a common feeling among those of us who work in this sort of science and religion field. And, of course, underlying all that is the issue of truth. I mean, science doesn't tell us all the truth, but it certainly tells us some of the truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think our religious insights tell us a deeper, a more important truth. And those who are seeking to serve the God of truth don't need to fear truth from whatever source it comes. So mm-hmm. I, I very much believe in the unity of knowledge and the unity of truth and I very much want to hold together my scientific insights and my religious beliefs and, and, and uh, commitments. And I think you've, you've written that, that, uh, that science and religion for you are both about discerning truth. Absolutely. It is at Absolutely. their core. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, I spent half my life working as a scientist. Mm-hmm. And then I, I decided I'd done my bit for physics and I'd do something else. So I turned my collar around and became a, an Anglican priest and began to think about theology in a serious way. My life changed in all sorts of ways at that transition point, but not in relation to the search for truth both as a scientist and as a theologian. That's the absolutely controlling factor. Is it true is the vital question. um, You've written, I find orthodox Christian belief to be both surprising and exciting in the same way that a good scientific theory enlarges one's imagination and satisfies one's intellectual desire for understanding. I'm interested in words like surprising and exciting in that. I think surprise <clears throat> sorry, I think surprise actually is an element both of your theology and of the way you look at, at the natural world. Yes, absolutely. I I mean I think if if uh Working in science teaches you anything. It is that the physical world is surprising. I mean, mm-hmm. I was a, a quantum physicist, and the quantum world is totally different from the world of every day. It's cloudy. It's fitful. You don't know where things are if you know what they're doing. If you know what they're doing, you don't know where they are. So that uh, it, it's, it's a complex world um, and quite different from what we expected. But it's an exciting world because it turns out we can understand it. And when we do understand it, we have a, a deep intellectual satisfaction. Now, if the physical world surprises us and is different from everyday expectation, common sense, if you like, it wouldn't be very odd, really, would it be, if, if God also turned out to be rather surprising. <laughs> and, of course, I'm, I'm a Christian, and at the heart of Christian belief is that God, the mysterious, invisible God, so hard in many ways to think about, has acted to make God's nature known in the clearest possible terms by actually living the life of a human being, Jesus Christ. That's an extraordinarily exciting idea, and I happen to believe a true idea. So, again, you get this sort of feeling that it's things that are just on the surface, easy to believe, are not the whole story. There is a deeper, stranger, and, and, and more satisfying story to be found, both in science and in religion. <coughs> Sorry. I, don't, I think I'd like to... to, uh, to ask you about a few other words that you use, right, concepts, yes. where I yeah. think you bring together both theology and religion right. and, and flesh them out for me. And another one is right. beauty. I mean, how do you think of yeah. that as a scientist and a theologian? How does that work together? Well, that's a, beauty is a very interesting thing. And a form of beauty that uh, is important to me uh, is mathematical beauty. That's mm. a rather austere form of, uh, of aesthetic pleasure. But uh, those of us who uh, work in that area and speak that language can recognize it and agree about it. And it means something like economy and elegance and what the mathematicians call being deep, which means that a rather simple-looking thing turns out to have amazingly rich consequences. 
And we found in theoretical physics that the fundamental laws of nature are always mathematically beautiful. In fact, uh, if, you, if, if, if you've got some ugly equations, almost certainly you haven't got it right, and you should think again. So beauty is the key uh, uh, to unlocking the secrets of the physical world. And beauty, I think, reflects something of, uh, of, of the creator's joy in creation. And, and I think there's a connection between beauty and joy, and that means there's a connection between these uh, scientific insights in their deep intellectual satisfaction and, and, and the idea of God as the creator of the world. You also uh, have talked about how in the same way that we take seriously the insights of science, we needed to listen to the words of poets and to the, to the insights of saints and mystics. Uh, and uh, absolutely. Sort of hearing that also in that context. Yes. Yes, I mean, I think <coughs> it's very rich and many-layered. And, and science, in a sense, explores only one layer of the world. It treats the world as an object, something you can put to the test, pull apart and find out what it's made of. And, of course, that's a very interesting thing to do, and you learn, to learn some important things that way. But we know that there are whole realms of human experience where, first of all, testing has to give way to trusting. That's true in human mm. relationships. Mm. If I'm always setting little traps to see if you're my friend, I'll destroy the possibility of friendship between us. And also where we have to treat things in their wholeness, in their totality. I mean, a beautiful painting, a chemist could take that beautiful painting, could analyze every scrap of paint on the canvas, tell you what its chemical composition was, uh, would incidentally destroy the painting by doing that, but it would have missed the point of the painting because mm. that's something you can only encounter in its totality. So we need complementary ways of looking at the world. Bits and pieces, for sure, that's a worthwhile thing to do, but not the whole story. And it's this richness of reality that, that uh, excites me. And I think that it, it religious belief provides the integrating factor behind all this, that, that the world has this rich character because the infinite uh, mind and purpose and, of God is behind it. Can you... Um I mean, I'm thinking even when you talk about moving from, from testing to trusting. I mean, right. scientists do that too, right? I mean, you talk about how, I mean, quarks are, have become an explanation, but isn't that something that scientists also take on faith in a sense? Well, quarks are, in some sense, unseen realities. Nobody yeah. has ever isolated a single quark in the lab. So we believe in them, not because we've, even with sophisticated instruments, so to speak, seen them, but because assuming that they're there makes sense of great swathes of physical experience. And I was lucky enough to be a, uh, a humble member of the particle physics community during the time all that was being worked out. And it was great fun to be, be in a small way part of it. So scientists certainly believe in unseen realities in that sort of way. And I believe that a belief in God makes, again, sense of great swathes now, not of physical experience, of course, but of spiritual experience. Our feelings of worship, of hope our enjoyment of beauty, our moral intuitions, for example. I mean, I think we know as surely as we know anything that torturing children is wrong. And I don't think that's just some sort of convention of our society. It's just a fact about the world. Where does it come from? I think it comes from the good and perfect will of God. Um, you know, I interviewed George Eldis, who's a yeah. cosmologist. Yes. I'm sure you know him. Yes, South African we're all friends. And yeah, Quaker. We were colleagues of Royal yeah. yes. And um, are you, you're probably familiar with his idea that... that I heard in what you just said, there's an echo that, that mm. at certain ethical values that, yeah. that turn up in most or all of the world's major religions, right. 
are somehow embedded into the natural, into the fabric of the universe in the way that mathematical equations or the laws of physics are there to be discovered, not invented. How do you react to that? I I certainly agree with George. I mean, George likes to speak of the universe as being the moral universe, Mm -hmm. the carrier of of a moral imperative. And I I think that's right. And I I, I think you, you have to ask, where does that moral dimension of reality come from? What is it, it, its source? And that, to me, is, 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 um, points me at, uh, to the good and perfect will of God as, as our intu- intuitions of that, our, our uh, ethical intuitions. You know, I should ask you um, to explain quarks since we just passed that over and <laughs> give someone an introduction. Also to, to the idea that that's something that scientists, in a sense, have discovered and yet take on faith yeah. at the same time. Yeah, well, I, when I began many years ago... <laughs> as a research student, a graduate student working in science, we thought that matter, nuclear matter, was made up of protons and neutrons. Uh, and then as we, the experimentalists began to find out more and more about what was going on, um, it became more and more difficult to, to uh, understand things in those terms. And it gradually it dawned on people, and dawned on some very clever people, that um, maybe the protons and neutrons themselves made up of something yet smaller, yet more basic, and they would have some quite surprising properties. For example, they would have fractional electric charge, which nobody has ever seen directly. And um, so then people began to see that though they couldn't see these entities on their own, there were the way matter behaved, both the way it was organized, the patterns of structure that it had, the way things bounced off, um, projectiles bounced off target particles and so on, all that made sense if these unseen quarks were sitting there inside, never capable of being locked out, but nevertheless real. So in this indirect way, the unseen reality of quarks became an absolutely fundamental uh, aspect of, 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 uh, of, of our understanding of the structure of matter. And that remains, remains the case. And I, common with all particle physicists, believe uh, uh, very fervently, in a way, in the reality <laughs> of quarks. But it's an unseen reality. It's, mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the fact that they give intelligibility to the world that makes us believe that they're actually there. Mm. It's such a fanciful word, quarks. How did that get named? Well, the, one of the people who made um, a, a great deal of the running in these discoveries was um, an American theoretical physicist called Murray Gell-Mann, who is also a polymath sort of person. He's very interested in, in language. And um, he had read um, James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, and there's a line in there which says, three quarks for Master Mark. <laughs> and uh, and these these quarks come in threes, and so um, Murray picked that up and, and uh, made this. this le- it's a learned literary I joke. Love that. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I, I, uh, we have a luxury in this kind of interview because it's not live, so that yeah. I can backtrack sure. a little. We don't have to be con- I, I want to. I do want to ask when you say that a mathematical equation can we be beautiful? Yeah. What are the qualities or properties? How do you describe what's beautiful about a mathematical equation? Well, it's very hard, of course, to describe any form of beauty. Of oh, beauty, right. Uh, to, uh, and in, in some sense, you have to perceive it. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, more difficult with mathematics because you have to be able to speak the language. It's a bit like saying, this is a wonderful Icelandic poem, but since if I don't understand Icelandic, I won't okay. get to grips with it. So um, mathematical beauty is connected, first of all, with things being elegant and economic. You don't write a great sprawling equation that takes half a page to write down. It's very concise, just perhaps a line with only a few symbols in it. 
but it turns out that it's also very deep. So that when you explore its consequences, you find this very simple-looking thing implies this, it implies that, all sorts of surprising and unexpected things. And if it's a successful uh, part of mathematical physics, of course, it will imply all sorts of phenomena happening in the world. And that's what we mean by mathematical beauty. Uh, I, it's very hard in everyday language to get uh, a closer description of that. What is striking, I think, is that those of us who happen to speak that sort of language can agree about mathematical beauty. Okay. Um, uh, but I, in fact, I suspect we agree rather more readily about mathematical beauty than, say, um, uh, painters do about artistic beauty. Huh. All right. Well, that's fascinating. There's something you, you, uh, that, um, that you wrote that I thought made sense in terms of this idea that we're, you and I are sort of dancing around, that mm-hmm. you can be a scientist and a, and a religious person. Right. And and take seriously the insights of both and not necessarily find them to be in opposition. Mm-hmm. You talked about how wave and particle theories mm-hmm. can both be true. Yes. And you talk about how Paul Dirac in 1920 at Cambridge suddenly made it clear how light could give a wave-like answer if you asked a wave-like question or a particle-like answer if you asked a particle-like yes. question. Can you explain what he's describing and what that means to you? Well, it's a very striking example of how surprising the physical world is. In the 19th century, people have been arguing about what light was like for a long time. Uh, Newton had some ideas about it. In the 19th century, uh, people made some discoveries, both experimental and theoretical, that clearly showed that light behaves like waves. There are certain properties of waves uh, which uh, showed up in, in, in an absolutely uh, unquestionable way. And so it's, the answer seemed to be settled. Right at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, through the ideas of Max Planck and also a young chap who was a, uh, an examiner in the patent office in Bern called Albert Einstein. Oh. People saw that uh, light also had particle-like properties. And that was a real crisis because, you see, a wave is a spread-out flappy thing and a particle is a little bullet. So how could something be sometimes spread out, sometimes bullet-like? And for about 25 years, nobody knew. But the scientists just had to hold on to experience by the skin of their teeth, even if they didn't quite know how to reconcile it. Uh, And then the thing has a happy ending, I'm glad to say back in my old University of Cambridge, uh, when Paul Dirac discovered something something called quantum field theory. Now, a field is something that is spread out, and so can be flappy, so it certainly has wave-like properties. But when you... When you bring in quantum theory, it makes things come in packets. That's the effect of quantum theory. It chops things up into little packets, and little packets look like little particles. So a quantum field has both these sorts of properties. And if you ask it okay. a wave-like question, it gives you a wave-like answer. You ask it a particle-like question, it gives you a particle-like answer. And you can't ask both questions at the same time, which saves you from having uh, uh, um, you know, a contradiction. Okay, but you, you take both answers into account. You take both answers into account, and, and uh, as I, the important thing I want to emphasize is that people had to cling on to taking both insights into account before they understood how they fitted together. Uh, we don't make progress by chopping experience down to a size that fits in to our current theories. We have to allow the way the world is to, um, to um, modify our understanding of the world. And if you're a Christian theologian and you're telling that sort of story that I've just told about light, both particle-like and wave-like, we know that the Christian story about Jesus Christ is that he is, of course, a human being, but also, in some real sense, uh, needs to be described in terms of divine language. 
And it's, it's the same sort of dilemma, if you like. And uh, we're not quite so clever theologically at finding the precise answer to that. But again, we don't make progress by denying our experience. Right. I mean, I was going to say that model, that, that paradigm that you said, that you, yeah. you, don't, you don't explain things and come to more wisdom by, by squeezing right. things into a theory. Right. Maybe scientists are more open to that kind of way of moving through the world than, than religious traditions sometimes have been. They, they may be. Actually, I mean, scientists don't find it easy to change their views either. I mean, okay. people sometimes say scientists question everything all the time. Yeah. I mean, of course they don't. We would make no progress <laughs> if we were If you were an eternal skeptic, you'd never get anything done. So it, it's painful and difficult, but the scientists do allow experience to mold their things. And perhaps more slowly, I think religious people do too, but it, it's, not, it's not quite so quick. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways religious people dealt with science for a mm. long time, and I'm talking about the last couple of centuries, which right. we've now called the God of the Gaps idea. Yes. Um, de- de- describe your understanding of, of how that worked to me. I mean, I think sci- people in the science-religion dialogue refer to that a lot, but I don't think lay mm. people out there have a memory of that. Well, uh, when science um, first came into being in the 17th century, and then the 18th century became very successful through discoveries of Newton and the aftermath of all those. Then some people began to say, well, okay, science can explain the solar system. It can explain everything. Uh, and the religious people tried to fight back by saying, no, science can't explain everything. And there are things that, um, there are gaps in our knowledge which only God can fill. Uh, and um, that was... Uh, um, uh, for example, the human eye is very complicated, a very beautiful optical system. How could that have come about other than being made, made so to speak, directly mm-hmm. by God? Well, of course, then Charles Darwin came along in the 19th century and showed how the eye could have evolved piece by piece, slowly and slowly, and so on, and drew the rug from beneath that argument. And then people could see, with hindsight, that the God of the gaps type argument, the God who stepped in to do the things that science couldn't currently explain, was in itself a theological mistake. Mm-hmm. If there is a God who is the God who is the creator of the world, that God is the God of the whole show, not the sort of cosmic stunt artist who does the difficult things, the obscure bits, and leaves nature, so to speak, to do the rest. It's back to this fundamental mistake of feeling that if nature does it, we don't need God. God is the God who ordains nature. God works through nature as much as through anything else. And in these, these days, in the science and religion community, the most... Um, uh, contemptuous criticism you make of somebody to say, I think your argument is a God of the gaps type argument. Right. And everybody says, no, 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 I'm not trying to do that. So we've learned something. We've mm-hmm. learned something. And I think we've learned something that, that is, is theologically um, helpful. There's a passage in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Letters mm-hmm. and Papers from Prison where yep. he says, where he's reflecting on that in the mid-20th yep. century and yep. says, if, if God is consigned to the unknowable, mm-hmm. we're learning more and more. So God is always being pushed further and further back out of human experience. That's right. Yes, I mean, the God of the Gaps was a sort of Cheshire Cat deity, fading away. Fading away, with the yeah. getting smaller and smaller. But actually, yes. I mean, again, we're back to this question of, of, of truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if God is the God of truth, then the more truth we, we have, the greater understanding we have, the more actually we are learning about God. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a question that I know you often address publicly yeah. and really get into it. Can a scientist pray? Yes. Can you pray? Uh, well, not only can, but do. Um, <laughs> and, of course, there are, all, there are all sorts of different forms of prayer. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's a sort of worshipful prayer. And I think a lot of scientists actually uh, pray in that way without knowing that they're doing it because uh, one of the rewards for 
what is actually a laborious business doing scientific research is a sense of wonder when you see the beautiful structure of the world or the way things, way things work. And I think and those scientists don't use the word wonder when they write formal papers for learned journals. They use it quite a lot in their conversation. And it is, as I say, the payoff for, for, for all the labour. And I think that actually is a, is a form of worship, whether scientists know it or not. But I suppose the, the, the crunch question is, can a scientist ask God to do something? Right. Uh, petitionary prayer in that sense. Knowing, knowing what you know knowing about the laws of nature and, well, well, in fact, right. as you're saying, respecting that it works and yeah. how it works. Well, that's <laughs> right. Well, if the world were clockwork, um, then I'd, I suppose you'd have to hope that God had designed the clockwork and wound it up in such a way that things wouldn't turn out too badly. But 20th century science has seen the death of a merely mechanical, a merely clockwork view of the world. It came, first of all, through quantum theory. Uh, at the subatomic level, quantum events are not uh, precise and determinate. They, they have a, a certain randomness to them. They have a certain uh, 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 cloudiness uh, to them. So that, that, that process isn't clockwork. And we've learned, of course, from chaos theory, the butterfly effect, very small disturbances producing enormously big consequences, that even the everyday world... Of the kind, uh, described by the sort of physics that would have been familiar to Newton. isn't as clockwork as people thought it was. So the world is certainly not merely mechanical. And I think, actually, we always knew that because we have always known that we are not mechanisms. We are not automata. Mm-hmm. We have the power to, ch- to choose, to act in the world. It's a limited power. We can't fly, but we, 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 ha- can, we have the power of agency. And if we can act in the world, uh, then I think there's no reason to think that God can't act in the world. As well, so I think that that 20th century science has loosened up our view of the physical world. It's no longer a, a, a piece of gigantic cosmic clockwork. It's a world of which we can conceive ourselves as the inhabitants and acting in it and helping to bring about the future. And I believe also God. So I, my answer would be a scientist can pray, mm-hmm. not of course as magic, <coughs> but as right. as as as, as uh, co- cooperating with God, if you like, to bring about the best for the future. So. I, I told you this before we began to speak. I think it was about 15 years ago I first heard your voice on the BBC late yeah. one Saturday night when I had been a not as not as I was not a scientist asking that question, but I was a person who had been completely political asking that uh, question. Yeah. And you, in five minutes, gave me a way to think about that to completely turn the make it so such an interesting question uh-huh. because you were talking about. Again, your idea of how you understand how the world works mm-hmm. and, and that for you, all that we've learned in science, and I want you to correct me if I'm not saying this yeah. what, right, suggests to you, again, sort of to repeat what you just said, that there are things that, that function in their essence and, mm-hmm. and move forward all the time, like we breathe or right, right. the grass grows. But there are also these places of randomness and, right. and little openings in reality. Yeah. And you also imagine that prayer somehow, that that, that that is relevant to the idea of prayer. Yes, yes. I think that the, the picture we now have of the, of the physical world, I mean, the, the, the old 18th century picture was a clockwork world. And there are certainly clocks in the world. The sun is going to rise tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We can tell you the exact minute to which it's going to rise. But we've also learned that there are lots of clouds in the world. That's to say, uh, processes uh, whose outcome is not clear and certain, and, and it's not... not um, clear beforehand what's what's exactly going to happen. So it's a sort of mixture of the two. And that means that uh, that has a consequence for prayer. There are some things 
that it isn't sensible to pray for. An uh, early Christian thinker called Origen, who lived in Alexandria, where it's jolly hot in the summer, said you shouldn't <laughs> pray for the cool of spring and the heat of summer. The seasons are going to be there. And, of course, theologically, we think that the regularity of the seasons reflects, if you like, the faithfulness of the Creator. But there are other aspects of the world uh, which, are, which are cloudy, and I think that's, those are the areas where there is, so to speak, room for manoeuvre. And I think it's through exploiting that room for manoeuvre that we act in the world and that God also acts in the world. So that uh, um, it, it, it is, uh, there are, are other things that we, we can pray for. I mean, the weather, for example, is certainly not just clockwork. And so, though it might cause a bit of a shiver to run down some people's spines, I think we can pray, pray for, for uh, rain if we're, we're afflicted by drought. Well, give me another example, though. I mean, rain is one, but I mean, what, what, what would be another um, example of thinking about openings for human action or even well, an example from your life? <clears throat> well, I, I, I think most of life actually, actually is, is, is cloudy. Um, and in, in these these cloudy areas, things can, so to speak, go 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 either way. Um, I, I think recovery from illness. I mean, of course, there are clearly illnesses that are mortal illnesses. There is a, a clockwork side to illness, if you like. Mm-hmm. But we also know that that um, that illness um, is very much affected. Uh, powers of recovery are very much affected by people's personality and so on. And I, I think that there um, we, we can pray that somebody may be strengthened or encouraged or given hope, and that may very well lead to, to a form of healing that might not have been possible um, w- without that. So there, there is this this, this um, quite extensive area. Uh, well, we can't exactly... The point is, if if God acts through these cloudy processes and we act through these cloudy processes, we can't take them apart and say, OK, I can see that God did that bit. Right. Because we, we just can't un- itemize them. Right. Uh, so... Um, and, and, and so the, the, we, we can't perceive it directly, but by faith we may um, have the intuition that God is indeed working in that sort of way. I mean, if you've been, if you've been sitting on the shores of the Reed Sea when a, a, a band of fleeing Israelites came along, you would have seen a wind come along and blow the waters back, and you see these escaping slaves get across, and then the wind drop and, and their pursuers be drowned. That's what you would see. And you... Nobody could stop you saying, gee, that was a lucky accident, wasn't it? Or stop one of the Israelites saying, the Lord God delivered us from slavery in Egypt. I mean, there is going to be an ambiguity in interpreting these mm-hmm. things. So this is kind of about ambiguity and, and, and variables that we may not yeah. be able to, to yes. perceive at any given moment. That's right. But life is, life is, life is like that. Uh, and and we, 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 we can't have it sort of cut and dry. And that enables us to be what we are. There's a very interesting scientific insight which says... That regions where real novelty occurs, where really new things happen that you haven't seen before, are always regions which are at the edge of chaos. <laughs> they are regions where cloudiness and clearness, order and disorder interlace each other. If you're too much on the orderly side of that, that, that borderline, everything is so rigid that nothing really new happens. You just get rearrangements. If you're too far on the haphazard side, nothing persists. Everything just falls apart. It's, it's these ambiguous areas where order and disorder interlace, where really new things happen, where, where the action is, if you like. And, and uh, I think that's, uh, that reflects itself in both in, 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 in the development of life and in many, many human decisions. I think you also bring your theology and your science together, interestingly, in seeing um, 
free. There's also something going on in the created world, in the world, and and including human beings' interaction with nature at any given time. That there that there's sort of competing freedoms. That there's. I think that's a very interesting, uh, yeah. complex idea. Well, I think we live in a world of true becoming. That's to say, I don't think that the future is fixed. I don't think God fixed it. I think God allows creatures to be themselves. Does God know it? Well, or that's, is it, that's, is an, this interesting, that's this an interesting... Ongoing creating, does that mean that God doesn't... If we live in a world of true becoming, so that we play our little parts in making the future, and I believe God's providence also plays a part in making the future, and also that the laws of nature that God has ordained play a part in, in constraining the form of the future. If that's the sort of world in which we live, then I think, actually... Even God doesn't know the future, and that's not an imperfection because the future is not yet there to be known. Mm. Now, that's a very controversial view, and not everybody <laughs> by any manner of means we'll would, agree with, would agree with me about okay. that, but that's, that's how it seems to me. And, and I think that, you see, there's been a very important development in theological thinking in the 20th century, and it's reflected in all sorts of quite different theologi- theologians, but they have this thing in common, that they see that the act of creation, the act of bringing into being a world in which creatures are allowed to be themselves and to make themselves, is an act of love and it is an act of divine self-limitation. The theologians like to call it kenosis from a Greek word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that God is not the puppet master of the universe, putting every string. God has taken, if you like, a risk. Creation is more like an improvisation than the performance of a fixed score that God uh, wrote in eternity. And and that sort of world of becoming uh, involves God's accepting limitations, and I believe accepting limitations, not knowing the future. That doesn't mean, of course, that God will be caught out by the future in the same way that you and I are. I mean, God can see how history is moving, so to speak. But God um, has to react to the way history moves. And I, that makes to me quite a lot of sense about the world. Well, and really that's a way to look to it, – it's a, it's a kind of theological way of describing evolution in a yes, sense. Yes, absolutely. This becoming, this yeah. creation that, that yeah. creates itself. Absolutely. Yes. And in fact, I mean, people – you know, Darwin published The Origin of Species in 1859 – and people think that was the great parting of the ways between science and religion, right. the big clash. All the scientists shouted, yes, yes, yes. All the obscure religious people, particularly the clergy, of course, shouted, no, no, no. And they just went their separate ways. Quite untrue. The scientists had, a lot of scientists had doubts about Darwin, actually, for a while. And some of the religious people from the start, an English clergyman called Charles Kingsley, said that God could no doubt have snapped the divine fingers and brought into being a ready-made world. But God had done something cleverer than that. God had made a world in which creatures could make themselves. And so that's the picture that God brings into being a universe. It has great potentialities, great possible fruitfulness, but creatures are allowed to explore and bring that fruitfulness to birth. And that seems to me a very beautiful and fitting form of creation, a better world, so to speak, than a world uh, which was ready-made. But it it has a a necessary cost. It has a shadow side. Yes, right. That's what I wanted to ask. uh, The question, if all these terrible things happen, what does that say about uh, the nature of Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the greatest difficulty for religious belief, obviously, is the way the world is. (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. it it is beautiful and it's fruitful, but it's also ugly and terrifying and and dreadful things happen in the world. And and, and the, the problem of evil and suffering is a very great problem. Now, this scientific insight helps us a little bit with that. If creatures are going to make themselves to explore this potentiality, there will be blind alleys 
and ragged edges in the exploration. It, 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 that's bound to happen. And, uh, I mean, a very simple example is this. What the engine that has driven the three-and-a-half-billion-year history of life on Earth has, of course, been genetic mutation. I mean, for two billion years or so, there were only bacteria. Then things complexified because genes mutated and new possibilities came along. So that's been a tremendous fruitfulness. But if that's going to happen, it's inevitable that other cells will mutate and will become malignant. You can't have one without the other. So though the fact there is cancer in the world is obviously an anguishing fact about the world, it's not, so to speak, gratuitous. It's not something that a god who is a bit more competent or a bit more compassionate could easily have eliminated. It's the shadow side of a world allowed to make itself. What does that way of looking at the world say about something like the recent tsunami? Well, it, 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 it's, it, if God allows creatures to be, God will allow tectonic plates to be. So creatures, not just human beings, but uh, every the, the aspect whole, the whole, of nature. When I say mm-hmm. creatures, I, I'm thinking of the whole created order, mm-hmm. different parts of it. For example, it, it, we believe that, it, that having tectonic plates is an important um, necessity for a planet that's going to have life because the, the, between the plates, new material wells up from inside and replenishes, so to speak, the surface of the Earth. But, of course, if there are going to be tectonic plates, not only will that happen, but sometimes they will slip. And when they slip, that, uh, that will create an earthquake or if it's under the sea, will create a tsunami. I mean, again, it's, it's a hard answer. I mean, it, it, it's mm-hmm. not a... It, 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 it's, it's not but, a compassionate answer. It's, well, it, it's, it's not a... It's, I, I think it has an element of compassion in it, but it, it, it's not a sentimental answer. That's, right. that's, for, that's for sure. I mean, a great Oxford theologian said what, uh, there was this tremendous earthquake in Lisbon in, 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 in uh, 17... Uh, whatever it is, 55, and, and it killed 50,000 people in one day. And he said, what was God's will? And the answer, the hard answer was that the elements of the earth's crust should behave in accordance with their nature. They are allowed to be, just as you and I are allowed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not an easy answer, but I think actually it is the, it is the true answer. Well, that, and that, that does, you know, that, that this, and maybe I didn't say it correctly, but I mean, this is something I've come to understand through your work, this idea of comp- that free will is built in and that it's a gift, right. essentially, that human beings experience it as a gift. Right. We're not robots. Yes. Pre-programmed. <clears throat> but, 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 but earthquakes will be earthquakes, or tectonic plates also have their essence of being. Right? That's right. That's they have their saying. essence of being. And that, and that, that is respected. That these, that these, that these freedoms and mm. these, this, this essential nature that's given to every aspect of creation can collide yes. and, and cause effects which will be devastating for one side or the other. Yes, I think, that, I think that's right. I think that God does respect the integrity of creation. God is not a sort of magician or an interferer. Um, God, I, I, I'm sure God interacts with the history of the world, but not in a way that overrules it. As the world is not God's puppet theater in that sense, and, and the, the puppets can go. I believe that God wills neither the act of a murderer nor the incidence of an earthquake, but allows both to happen in a world which is a creation given a degree of, uh, of independence by its creator. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then, I mean, what does that still, uh, as you as a, and maybe not even as a theologian, but as a person of faith, yeah, you know, yeah. how do you think about still that nature of God mm. reacting to this devastation and, and, yes. and tragedy that is sometimes caused by the nature of all of this? Well, there, there, there are, I, I think I'd want to, I want to say three things. First of all, I mean, the sort of argument we've been having at the moment 
is, is an intellectual argument, and I think it's mildly helpful, uh, uh, but it doesn't, of course, answer all the, the problems. I mean, the uh, problems with evil and suffering are deep existential problems. Mm-hmm. Why is this happening to me or why is this happening to somebody I love? And that those are entirely legitimate uh, questions, questions to, to ask. There's a particular Christian insight that seems very, very important to me. Uh, Indeed, in some sense, enables the possibility of Christian belief. And that is that the Christian God is not simply a compassionate spectator, invulnerable up in heaven, looking down on this strange and suffering world, but has also been a fellow sufferer, a fellow participant in the the agony of creation. The cross of Christ, uh, understood from the point of view of Christian theology is God living a human life and nailed to the cross in the darkness and in the paradox of the dereliction, my God, my God why have you forsaken me, Mm -hmm. of Calvary so God knows human suffering and the suffering of creation from the inside and not simply from the outside and also I don't want to to play a sort of pie in the sky uh, uh, type of answer to things but um, I do believe that this life is not the only life we live. I do believe we have a destiny beyond death. And though that doesn't explain away the suffering of this world, it, it, I think they would be even more bitter, really, if, if, um, if, if there, were, there were no such destiny mm-hmm. uh, to look forward to. And that's an article of faith, really. That's... Well, it's an article. Of course, as a Christian, mm-hmm. I believe that it's an article of faith that has been exemplified and guaranteed within history by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it, it's, it's, it's not something of which we have direct experience. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a very deep human intuition of hope. Hmm. Um, Peter Berger makes this very beautifully in a little book of his called A Room of Angels. He takes everyday things and says, think about them for a minute. Where are they pointing you? They're deeper than you think. And one of the things he says is, a child wakes up in the middle of the night, scared by a dream or something like that. A parent goes to the child and says, it's all right. And Berger says, now, what's going on there? Is that a loving lie? Because obviously cancer concentration camps, the world is not exactly just all right. But nevertheless, he says that is a deep human intuition, and the assurance that that's so is an important part of enabling that child to grow up into full humanity. So there is a deep-seated human intuition of hope, the strangeness and bitterness of the world notwithstanding. Mm -hmm. And I I do take that very seriously. You take that seriously. Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. As part of the evidence we have of what we're well, of the uh, truth we're well, trying uh, to get. Well, I say, yeah. um, Berger calls these things signals of transcendence, mm-hmm. hints that take us beyond mm-hmm. the everyday level of things. And I take it seriously at, at, at that level. Yeah. I want to in just a minute. I want to ask my prof- my producers if they have some questions. I <clears throat> this is a simple question, but uh, it's, it, I, when I was learning about evolution and reading right. my Bible when I was say a teenager, right. yeah. It seemed to me, and you said something very similar to this at the beginning of our conversation, so I want to come back to it. It seemed to me that, now obviously, um, the texts of Genesis 1 and 2 where religious people look to talk yeah. about creation are, as you say, not meant, to, not, they were not written as scientific right. textbooks. But it, it still seems to me that if you, um, the only real leap that you have to make for at least the Genesis 1 story mm-hmm. in the beginning and the and the sort of progression mm-hmm. of life forms. The only right. leap you have to make for that really not to contradict with what we know of, from science is to say God's days are longer than our days, right? That that there's a sense of time. I mean, well, not quite. I mean, okay. the the, the uh, I mean, there. It is an extraordinary 
Thing Genesis one. Yeah. It's, it's the more sophisticated of the two stories, of course. Yes. And um, things don't quite quite come in the right order. I mean, it's striking that it begins with energy, if you like, let there be light. It's striking that life starts in the waters and moves on to the land. Uh, but of course, when those would be true, essentially more or less what we've more or less discovered. What we've, yeah. But sun, moon, and stars only come on the fourth day. <laughs> okay. And, and, and of course, there wouldn't be any life without the stars because that's where they make the raw material mm-hmm. uh, for, for, for life. So that that isn't right. And we believe that one of the reasons, uh, we believe theologically, one of the reasons why sun, moon, and stars come downstream, so to speak, is that the writers wanted to say the sun and the moon aren't deities. They're not to be worshipped. Because they're, that they're was creatures. a conflict they're of They're creatures, creatures yes. just like everything else. Yes. So, and that shows us that what we're reading is uh, a theologically oriented thing and not a, not a, a scientifically oriented thing. I mean, you, you have to figure out, when you read something and you want to read it respectfully, you have to figure out what it is you're reading. Is it poetry or is it prose? If you read poetry and think it's prose, you will make the most astonishing mistakes. Mm-hmm. And Genesis 1 is a poem, isn't it? It's, it's mm-hmm. much more like a poem than, mm-hmm. than, than like prose. And, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and, and that's, that's, in a sense, the sadness of the creationist so-called position, that these people who are really wanting to be respectful to Scripture are, I think, ironically, being disrespectful because they're not using it in the right way. Hmm. Um, all right. Well, so uh, you won't say that the, the only leap is to say God's days are longer. But let me yeah. ask you this. If you, it takes 14 billion years to get to where we got now. Right. By, by your understanding of the best of science right, that's right. out there. What is that long amount of time, that patience? So yeah. How does that inform your understanding of the nature of God? Well, it, it's certainly God, God is not a God in a hurry. That, that's, that, that's clear. God is patient and subtle. God works through process and not through magic, not through snapping the divine fingers. And I, I think that's what we learned from, from seeing the, the history of creation as science has revealed it. And I think that tells us something about how God, uh, how God acts, acts generally. And, and when you think about it, um, if God really is a God whose nature is best described as being the God of love, then that is how love will work, not by overwhelming force, but by... Mm by, if you like, uh, persuasive process. Hmm. So I think we learned something really quite valuable from that. And it, it, again, it's an example of how um, religious insights about the nature of God and the scientific insights about the process of the world seem to me, actually, to be very consonant with each other. You can't deduce one from the other, but you can see that they fit together hmm. in a way that makes sense. They don't seem to be uh, at odds with each other. And I, I find that encouraging. Hmm. Let me see if there's some questions from behind the glass. Um, <laughs> I don't Anybody? I can't see everyone. Will 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 he be able to hear the questions too? I'm going to have to pose them for the air, so just yeah. I'll listen and then I'll. Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Um, and it, so we, you know, another another interesting and 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 hard question, at least on the surface, is if tectonic plates, which we'll 
always eventually right, create so, earthquakes yeah. and tsunamis, um, act according to their nature. Right. Um, what, how does that reflect on the idea that there is also some kind of moral nature of the universe? We talked about if ethical principles are also embedded in mm-hmm. the universe. Are those just, is that a mystery? We just have to... Well, I think that, um, I don't think that moral principles apply directly to um, uh, tectonic plates. I mean, they apply to people who are moral agents. Okay. Uh, you could you could ask the question of therefore if, if there are questions about uh, moral questions that they they're about the morality of God right is God moral <laughs> if God created <laughs> tectonic right. plates yeah well uh, there I think that uh, that, that if God uh, I'm back to what something I said before that if God is going to bring into being a world in which creatures are allowed to make themselves and God does that because that is a greater good than a ready-made world or a magic world in which fire never burns anyone when they put their hands into it and so on, when deeds, in fact, never have consequences. If that's a, if that's a, a better world, then even God, you see, can't create that world without it having its shadow side. I mean, it's very important to understand what we mean when we say God's almighty. What we mean by that not, that, not that God can do absolutely anything, but God can do what God wills in accordance with God's nature. I mean, the good God can't do evil deeds. Mm-hmm. The rational God can't decree that two plus two equals five. And if God is going to bring into being a world in which creatures make themselves and God judges that uh, to be a, a world of greater good than a ready-made world, then even God cannot make that world a world in which there isn't a costly side to things. Mm. Okay. Let me ask you, um, as we wind down, um, are there any um, any new cutting-edge developments in your field of particle physics or in the world of science that 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 really challenge your faith or that that pose questions that you're holding in tension? Well, I've never I've never in my exploration of these things um, felt I, I, I reached a sort of crisis situation which I was faced with either or choice. I mean, mm-hmm. I either yeah, go with yeah. science or go with religion. There are, of course, puzzles all the time. And one of the, one of the things that's happening in the, in the, um, in the um, science and religion world, to some extent, in the last few years, it has been that people are getting interested in questions of what the theologians call eschatology. In other words, trying to, ma- trying to make mm-hmm. sense of mm-hmm. the notion of a destiny beyond death. Right. And, and then you, you, you get raised questions of what's the human soul, I don't think it's a detachable spiritual bit, so to speak. I think it's the real me. The real me is certainly not just the matter of my body because that's changing all the time through wear and tear, eating and drinking, the atoms change. Mm-hmm. But it's somehow, in some sense, the pattern in which the atoms are formed. And that, I think, is what the soul is. And instead, that's what Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian of the Middle Ages, would have thought it was too. And that would be the pattern of your personality and your yeah, well, effect- it, 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 It's an immensely rich pattern. I mean, right. beyond our past, right, not only, it, and it doesn't finish at my skin. It obviously involves my memories, my, my character, my personality. But also, I think, involves all the relationships that help Right, it takes on substance me. in the course of your life. Exactly. Uh-huh. And, and, and it's very complex. And I'm, I'm, obviously, we're struggling to even say something uh, about it. But that's what it is. I think, and I, th- I think God will not allow that pattern to be lost, and God will recreate that pattern in an act of resurrection. These are the sort of things that people are exploring at the moment, and I think that's a what's happening. I think is that the science and and, and uh, uh, theology um, conversation is getting more theological, 
theology is being allowed to set more of the questions. I mean, for a long time, and quite rightly for a long time, science set the questions. Here's Big Bang cosmology, here's biological evolution. What do you make of that? Mm -hmm. And theology would seek to respond, and I think it's been able to respond pretty well. But now, um, theology is asking them the questions and saying, you know, what's the human person? What's, what, 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 what could be the carrier of continuity between life in this world and the world to come? And I think that's, that's a healthy development. You, you want the conversation to be very even-handed in mm-hmm. that respect. Is there something you're especially intrigued by that's on the cutting edge right now that you find exciting that adds to this way you've come to, to, to uh, make sense of the world and theology and science together? Well, it would be in the area of these eschatological issues, which, mm-hmm. uh, which okay. uh, have really, I've been concerned with the last, I suppose, four or five, four or five years, and it's it's rather difficult to. I'm going to give a lecture about that tomorrow, but it's rather difficult to, to um, encapsulate that right in a, in a sentence or two. What's happened in particle physics is very interesting. During the time I was in particle physics, the subject was largely experimentally driven. The experimentalists kept on finding new things. The theorists were sort of limping along behind them, making sense of them. And it was a very, a very healthy and exciting state of affairs. Um, now the, exper- the experimentalists are uh, rather strapped for cash and don't make as many big discoveries as they used to. And the theorists have become very, very speculative. I mean, string theory is the name of the game right, these days. These are things that are very hard for outsiders to Well, the, string theory, uh, the thing to understand about string theory is the string theorists are very clever, they're using mathematics, but they're using mathematics simply on its own. And they are speculating that they can guess what nature is like a thousand million million times smaller than anything of which we have direct ex- experience. Mm-hmm. And the lessons of history are against that, because as we've explored nature, we've always tended to find that around the next corner is something that is surprising, unexpected. Right. And uh, though I wish my old colleagues well, I, I, I'm doubtful whether they really are quite as clever as that. Okay. I think, I think we've done it. Are you, is there anything I haven't asked you or something you really like to talk about when uh, you talk about this? Oh, I, what, would you give me a definition of particle physics? Well, particle physics is simply the, uh, the study of the, the smallest uh, components of matter. Okay. Anything else? I don't think so. I mean, you know, there are endless things one can talk I know, about. I know, I know, I know. I think we've, uh, yeah, first, may I say we had a very enjoyable, we had a very, very enjoyable <laughs> well, conversation. I had a very enjoyable conversation. And Thank- uh, I think we've covered, you know, m- yeah. big, big main topics. And I, I got to ask my follow-up questions to yeah. that five-minute piece I heard on the BBC, which taught me so much 15 years ago. Yeah. So thank you very much. Great. Thank you. <laughs> this is great. I, 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 people love it when we do shows on science. I mean, I think actually... I feel that in the general public, mm-hmm. you know, there is this bubbling up of religion, at least in this country, yeah. religious energy, religious curiosity. And I feel that there's a parallel bubbling up of interest in science. I mean, well, I, I, I hope so. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I mean, not, not even, not even that, that, that the general public is making the connection between mm. the two yet, but I see them both. No, I mean, certainly, I, I mean, I do quite a lot of speaking around about these things and, and quite a variety of all different audiences. Yeah. And, and, the best bit is always, of course, the discussion bit because because I know what I'm going to say and I don't know what other people are going to say, and it's almost always a lively discussion. I mean, people, these things are on people's minds. Well, this is the stuff yeah. of life we're talking about. We really, really are talking about. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're 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 they are, they are important issues mm-hmm. certainly. Yeah. So it's fun. So I'm glad to be here to do a bit more of that talking. Well, and yeah. we'll.
be able to get this out to a wide audience. Yeah. Yes, no, absolutely. And we'll send you yeah. a CD. And oh, thank you. That, oh, would be, sure. that would be nice, Before yes. Before you get up, I just need to check the tape for one thing. There's one question, okay. or one answer. You started that you may have coughed over. I just want to make sure that okay. it's intact. Okay. You just sure, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. My perfectionistic yeah. producer, and he's great. If I may say so, I think the radio is a much better medium 